I do a little micro-teaching, you know, something that, well, it could be a whole class. We're not going to do as a whole class. We're just going to pop in something. And uh, uh, we talked a little bit about the terms sex versus gender. That was my last micro-lesson. I want to do another micro-lesson that actually sort of ties in, not with this particular catechism question for today, but just with the catechism in general. Keep raising the question as we're going through this, is why study this? Because after... After all, people today, I mean, theology has fallen out of favor. And the biggest question you hear all the time is, theology is not practical. Uh, you know, why bother? I, tell me how to fix my marriage. Tell me how to get along with the, you know, the, the chump who's at work and that kind of thing. Um, of course, we're clearly taught in Scripture, if we look very briefly at something like Deuteronomy chapter 6, uh, now this is the command right from the beginning now this is the commandment the statutes and the rules of the Lord your God commanded me to teach you that you may do them in the land to which you are going over to possess it that you may fear the Lord your God you and your son and your your son's sons by keeping all his statutes and his commandments which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be long so here you're being told okay as you prepare to go into the promised land you are to teach your children why do we you know to, these are the things you have to do well, it hasn't yet got into the children, sorry. But you're, you're, to, uh, you're to do all these different things. Hear, therefore, O Israel, and be careful to do them, that it may go well with you, and that you may multiply greatly as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. So in other words, be good, obey, all that. And then those famous lines, Deuteronomy 6, verse 4, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. There's all sorts of theology in that. I'm going to let that stand for now. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. Okay, so you to love God uh, with everything in your being, with a passion. And then it's to be on your heart. It's something that's supposed to be internal. Something that is more than just a, an outward obedience. Uh, your obedience is driven by that love for God. These these commands, uh, the command to to do all the, the commandments, you know, obey, and love God are not mutually contradictory. They come together and, in fact, can only, come, can only work when they come together. Your obedience ought to be driven by love. And then he says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk to them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. In other words, it should just be part of your everyday life. Your kids need to see it. It needs to be part of your family life and all that. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, to give you without great, uh, with great and good cities that you did not build, in other words, all this grace and, and blessing that you didn't earn, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant, and when you eat and are full, then take care lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. It is the Lord your God you shall fear. Him you shall serve, and by his name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, uh, who is in your midst is a jealous God. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you, and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. So God's being gracious to us. He's going to give us everything. Worship him alone. <clears throat> I'm going to skip down then. Verse 20, 
when your son asks you in time to come, what is the meaning of the testimonies and the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God has, uh, that the Lord our God has commanded you, then you shall say to your son, we were Pharaoh's slaves in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand, and the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and grievous, against Egypt and against Pharaoh and all his household and uh, before um, our eyes. And he brought us out from there that he might bring us in and give us the land that he swore to give to our fathers. And the Lord commanded us to do all these statutes to fear the Lord our God for our God always, that, uh, for our good always, that he might preserve us alive as we are this day. And it will be righteousness for us if we are careful to do all those commandments before the Lord our God as he has commanded us. So now you see him turning and saying, this is the reason why. And he explains the history of redemption so far as it was in that moment. He brings it up to speed. In other words, you're able to articulate the faith in such a way that you, know, you answer the questions. Why do we do the things that we do and so on? And this is absolutely essential. None of it's really changed. Uh, we have a whole lot more history of redemption to include. But why do we do these things? A lot of people, just like I said, just want the practical. And you can just imagine somebody who says, well, look, I don't want to know about, I mean, just talk about something else, not theology, uh, cooking, for example. Okay, look, uh, you know, just teach me how to cook. I don't want to know the whys, the wherefores. Just, just teach me to do this now. Okay, fine. Well, here's a tub of lard, and you can use this to grease your pans and, to, and, and it makes your food taste good. All that is true, by the way. Right, and then the person does that, and, and they come back uh, a year later and say, you know, we all have heart disease, and we've all gained 20 pounds and everything else. Well, you didn't want to learn. You didn't really want to get behind the scenes, you know, and see the, the where's and why's and understand that there are different things that affect, you know, your health and all that. You just wanted the mechanics, you know, just show me how to do it. That's best analogy just popped into my head. I can think of here, you know, last minute, but you get the idea. We have to be, if you want to be able to talk about um, you know, uh, improving your marriage or dealing with the difficult person at work, which I realize is what a lot of churches do. They just get up here, you know, five things that you've got to do. How do you know they're not selling you snake oil? I mean, you know, there's a, I just heard a, a sermon. The guy stands up there and um, uh, I'm saying guy loosely, uh, and he's wearing his, you know, brightly rainbow colored stuff and he says, God is gay. God is lesbian, God is trans, uh, what else did he say? Um, uh, uh, God is black, God is white, God is Asian, God is Latino, uh, God is, you know, love and all this. Uh, you know, you hear that and it sounds great. You know, God's for all of us, you know, and all that kind of, how do you know when they're peddling you snake oil? And the only way you're gonna know that is get, get under the hood and take a look and see what drives that practical stuff, you know, so if I'm telling you this is the way you deal with people at work or this is how you deal with your marriage and all that, you have to be able to get under the hood and take a look and see. So that's why we spend time doing this. Not only this, you know, we've done classes here on parenting in Sunday school. You know, sometimes we'll do some church history and all that. But this is just so that we understand because there will be many times where you'll sit there and, and you'll hear somebody say, oh, you know, in our church, we're, we're studying. And I'm not saying that they're teaching necessarily anything wrong. Uh, I hope that they're nailing it. But it's one of those teach a man how to fish versus just, you know, giving him a fish every day kind of thing. Uh, there's a maturity that comes with knowing how to do it yourself. And to do that, we've got to teach you the tools. So anyway, just a little micro teaching on why we spend some time doing things like the catechism. So... All right, well, let's jump in and take a look at the catechism today. We're on question 22. Again, that's in your 
uh, Trinity hymnals around page 870-ish. Trinity hymnal, 870-ish, something like that, question 22. And as we prepare to do that, we're going to do like we do in the past. I'm going to ask you to go ahead and uh, look up some passages here in just a moment. In fact, why don't we put those up there. Uh, We're going to do Hebrews 2.14. And whoever does Hebrews, keep your finger there. We're going to do, or everybody can do that. We're going to do a lot of Hebrews today, right in that section. 214, 217, we're going to do all that. Matthew 26, 38. Luke 130, oh, Luke 131, Luke 135. Why don't we just do that? 131 and 135, and 35. And uh, finally, Hebrews 7. So let's go ahead, and uh, if somebody has question 22... Would you please read that with the answer? All right, thank you so much, Matt. All right, so last time we looked at the fact that um, Jesus is the eternal Son of God, you know, the Christ, the second person of the Trinity who became a man. And we looked at what that, what that means, that he continues being God even while he is a man, and that what he is is one person and two natures. That's what we talked about last time. This time we're going to focus on how he became a man. See, a little bit of a difference there. So that's what we're going to do. So uh, the first thing it tells us, you know, Christ, the Son of God, became man by taking to himself a true body. We talked a little bit about this last time, so I won't go too much into it. But whoever's got Hebrews 2.14, could you read that? Very good. Thank you so much, Phil. Uh, yeah, so there he, just as the children, uh, the children mean us, are actually flesh and blood, we're truly human, so he himself takes on that same human nature. We talked about that last week, I'm not going to go too much into it, the point is here, it is a true body, you remember we talked last week about groups, not so much today, most people today don't, de- don't deny the humanity of Christ, they deny the divinity of Christ, and that's what we put our focus on last week, but there have been some groups like the Docetists, Docetism, uh, throughout history that do deny that Jesus had a true body because it's that Plato thing that the body and all things physical are evil so God never could have taken it on. Uh, and we know how to answer that. God made the body good. Uh, it was part of what he made. But it also says that he took upon himself a reasonable soul. Now reasonable is not being used in the way that we use the word today. Today reasonable means, well that person's reasonable. You know, they're not insane or they know how to think through. Reasonable here literally means able to reason. In other words, it was a soul, like a thinking, engaged soul, just like everybody else. For that, let's just take a look at one of many passages. Matthew 26, 38. Who might have that? Matthew 26, 38. Then he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Okay, so there's Jesus talking about his own soul. Uh, a soul that has feelings. He could be... He could be angry, he could be sad, he could be sorrowful, as it's put here, uh, and so on. So Jesus takes on a real soul, and, and we already, again, touched upon this last week. There are those who have thought throughout church history uh, that what uh, Jesus is is basically a body that then has the divinity of God poured in, and like his, then that becomes the animating force. And in reality, no, he's a human being, just like we read in the Hebrews passage, just like us in every way, so that he, we're body and soul. That's what makes us human. Our humanity is not our soul or even our bodies. Truly human means both. God made both. And so uh, Jesus himself has that. So 
that's what we looked at last week and kind of bled, as we talked about the true natures, we really kind of got into the beginning of this catechism, catechism question. What we're going to do now is shift focus to the how, to the how it happened. Before I do that, since we're going to kind of leave last week behind in this opening part of the catechism, any questions about that so far? The fact that he had a real human body and a reasonable soul, a thinking uh, Phil. Uh, real quick, none. Yeah, they're the same. Yeah, and uh, uh, it would be um, easy enough to look at passages like love the Lord your God that we looked at with all your body, heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Scripture interprets Scripture. Uh, there are some folks who believe that there are three things, body, spirit, and soul. They do it, they, they pull that view only from that place where it says that. Uh, everywhere else, it is pretty clear that there's two aspects to our humanity. And uh, the body part, which we get, and then the soul part. And there doesn't seem to be anything else that's separate. Everything else seems to be constructed around um, this. And if you look at, you know, uh, that language, love the Lord your God with all your heart, do we take that seriously, uh, literally? No, your heart just pumps blood, right? It doesn't do anything about love despite all the little Valentine, you know, hearts and all that. It has nothing to do with that. So it's metaphorical language, saying with everything that you've got, you know, you, you, you pour it into your love of God. Um, so, no, basically body and soul, body and spirit. Uh, Jesus, you know, as he dies, uh, I, to you I commend my spirit. Um, so, but good question. Anything else before we move on to the hows? Yes, that's exactly that's exactly it, right? It's not that he is unreasonable, you know. Just just like everyone else, right? Exactly. So the the how then, you know, being conceived by the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of the Virgin Mary and born of her. Who's got Luke one thirty one and one thirty five, please? All right. So we're going to look at this and unpack it a little bit and what that means. Uh, you know, Mary very clearly then is the one who's going to conceive of this, uh, conceive this child, and it should happen in this in this supernatural way where the spirit overshadows her. And we'll talk a little bit about that. And it, yet it says, and, and then it says, and yet without sin. So who's got Hebrews seven twenty six? Okay, so there we have one who is uh, is separated from sinners, not the same because of that line. We'll, we'll look at what that means and, and everything. But basically, when we talk about the what, God becoming man, without surrendering his godhood, one man, one person, two natures, fully God, fully human, established that. What we've got to turn to now is the how. And the how has been under attack for the last 140 uh, years. Uh, and so you might say, well, does that matter? It matters very much. So essentially, there's two things that we're seeing here. One is the virgin birth that's being discussed here, and then also the sinless uh, nature of Christ. So let's unpack both of those. And more importantly, after we've established that those things are in fact uh, true, the catechetical, you know, the answer is, is in fact biblical, we want to look at why that matters. And it matters very, very much. So let's go ahead and start with this idea of the virgin birth of Christ. Now, um, the minute that you say that, uh, 
in an evangelical church, what does everybody do? Everybody recoils. Because we have been trained that anything Roman Catholic is wrong and evil and so on. Uh, an overreaction at times uh, to anything that is uh, Roman. Of course, the Roman Catholic Church was, uh, 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 you're gonna, this is going to sound strange to you, but they broke off from the true church. We always, you know, they always say the Protestants are the ones who broke off. Institutionally, that may be true. But in terms of their beliefs and so on, they deviated from where they need to be. But Roman Catholics, you know, were uh, plugged into the initial uh, church. And so they preach and uh, they make use of the Bible and they talk about Jesus. Well, we preach and we... So not everything that Catholics do is necessarily something that's scary. But the reason that we recoil is because it does seem like they've gotten this quite wrong. Uh, Our Roman Catholic friends... When they hear the virgin birth of Christ, the part that gets highlighted is the word virgin. Yes, that becomes the huge part. For Reformed people, the part that gets uh, uh, highlighted is birth. And those different emphases really, really tell the story. Uh, Mary is then exalted because of her virgin birth. Uh, she becomes hailed as the mother of God. She is literally called queen of the universe. Did you know this? Have you never heard that term? She is uh, called co-redemptrix. I'm gonna erase these if that's all right. Oh, absolutely it is. In fact, I'll uh, go ahead and show you that. Oh yeah, this is, uh, uh, you can look this up, co Now, this is um, bad, okay? <laughs> but yes, co-redemptrix, queen of the universe. And, I, you know, if, if you grew up in that or if that's still your thing or you're listening to this online, uh, the first thought is, oh, no, they are attacking uh, the Blessed Mother and they just don't understand. Well, let's see uh, what we do understand. Um, by the way, in case you ever have any doubts about any of this, um, I have it in my study. You can find it online. The Catechism of the Catholic Church, CCC, is how it usually is abbreviated. Catechism of the Catholic Church, uh, very easy to, to navigate. It's huge. It's about that thick, but it's got a really good uh, table of contents. We'll look at some of those here in just a moment. Uh, when I lived in Orlando, Orlando has the only shrine to Mary in the continental U.S., And guess what it's called? It's called Mary, Queen of the Universe. And some of you undoubtedly have seen it because it's located right outside of Disney on I-4. And, you know, I-4, major drag that leads into Kissimmee and all that other stuff where Disney's at or Universal or any other. And it's a fairly new thing. I mean, it's not like, oh, this was built in 1754 or something. It was built as a response to all the buildup in Orlando because they, look, if you're going to build a shrine, uh, you're thinking everybody goes there. It's like the number one vacation hotspot, so I'll just put it right here and everybody will see it. But uh, yeah, welcome to Mary, Queen of the Universe, Basilica and Shrine. I don't know, you can kind of maybe see. I'm sorry, say again? Yes. Jesus. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty clear from a number of places, like all through the Psalms. Uh, and in case we're not sure that the Psalms are referring to him uh, or then the Gospels, you know, when uh, 
the king of the Jews and all this other stuff. It's pretty clear in Romans 4, 5, Romans 4 and 5 when he uh, ascends to the throne of heaven and uh, takes from the Father the, the scroll, which is the scroll of, of God's eternal decree. This is what God is decreeing for the universe. And nobody's found who's worthy to un- unroll the scroll uh, except for the Lamb of God. Uh, and he sits and from there he reigns. Uh, I mean, there's many other things that show this. So Mary is elevated to that position to be the queen. And as I said, she's actually called co-redemptrix. And you hear people sit there and say, well, we don't pray to Mary as God, as a God. We just simply ask her to, to intercede and pass our prayers on to Jesus, right? You've heard that, right? I'm gonna read from this website. I didn't create this website. They created it. Blessed Mother, may your grace, now, her grace, right? Not ask God, because, you know, if, I, if, if you ask me to pray for you, you know, J. John, ask that the Lord's grace would help us. No, no, may your grace, Mary, envelop all who walk these grounds that they may find peace, comfort, rest, and love in your Son, always waiting for them here. Grant these, your pilgrims, safe passage back to their homes, and may our love and prayers follow them as lights in their hearts for all their days. I'm asking you, Mary, to do this, to give me, to do something. That, so now she's doing stuff. You see what I'm saying? So any time that I hear somebody give me that whole line of uh, we, just, we just petition Mary to pray on our behalf. No, no. Here you are asking her to do stuff, to change traffic patterns, right, and travel and all that. So, okay, I'm going to control myself and we're going to go on um, but you see that very clearly she's the one who is elevated uh, and, and, and so on in the reform view it's the other way around the, full, the, the emphasis is on Jesus being born right Galatians 4, 4 says in the fullness of time at the right time God became man and there we get into the, the so called humiliation the, the being humbled uh, where God has to be like the rest of us, you know, being brought low, uh, the one who created all things. So there's the, the difference in, in emphasis. That said, I think, you know, a lot is, um, once we realize that that elevation is happening of Mary, you know, and co-redemptrix, oh, and, you know, I, I did say, let's, let's take a look briefly, shall we? That's, that's at the catechism. Well, you know what? Hang on. Let me let me um, let me just make the point I was going to make in a moment here. Mary, the mother of God. That statement. I was recently asked by somebody, "Is that okay?" In the Eastern Church, Mary is referred to as the Theotokos, the God Bearer, the one who bears God, the Mother of God. Is that an accurate title? And I think G.I. Williamson, who I have referred to uh, a number of cases. By the way, G.I. Williamson is I think ninety-seven years old and. Uh, Recently heard that he is uh, perhaps coming to the end of his earthly life. Um, there's probably no guy in the last, you know, 200 years who has done more to write uh, instruction for the church. Um, everybody knows R.C. Sproul, who's absolutely wonderful. Um, as much as R.C. has written, uh, he's not written as much as G.I. Williamson. And um, yeah, just grab his, you can... If you like the Heidelberg Catechism, he's got a book on the Heidelberg. If you like the Shorter Catechism, he's got one. A larger, he's got one. Westminster Confession of Faith, he's got one. Uh, it makes everything very accessible. But G.I. Williamson says this. 
He says, this phrase, Mary, the mother of God, is often used to exalt Mary, which is what we've been talking about. When this phrase is used to lift Mary up to the level of God, then it is utterly false and against the honor of God. For obvious reasons, she becomes uh, an idol. But at the same time, it is important to understand that this same phrase can be used to mean something very true and very proper. The Bible and the Catechism teach us that Jesus Christ is a person. They also teach us that this person has two natures. He is God and he is man. And this means that Jesus was God as well as man when he was born of Mary. The child that Mary brought forth was the God-man, and therefore Mary is the mother of Jesus who is God. In this sense, it is not only proper, but even quite necessary to say that Mary is the mother of God, because it's emphasizing that this is the God-man. But observe, and this is the payoff pitch, but observe that this is said not to lift Mary up to the level of God, It is said only because Jesus truly did come down to the same level with Mary. And you see the difference in emphases. And I think that is very, very important for us to to see how you basically just run with something and get a little too far. So let's take a look at some of the ways in which uh, this has been misunderstood and and corrupted and so on. Uh, Basically, there's two errors we're going to look at here. Yeah, we have enough time. So the first error is the one that confuses the virginity of Mary when she conceived of Christ with sinlessness. And you know, this has become a big thing. Uh, The claim that Mary remained a virgin even after the birth of Christ, that she never uh, had relations uh, with her husband. Um, And as a result of that, it goes on to talk about her being sinless Catechism of the Catholic Church, you think we have 107. This is sort of like a third of the way in in question 411. And uh, they actually ask one question and they give multiple answers. This is answer 411. It says, the Christian tradition sees in this passage an announcement of the new Adam, blah, 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 blah. Um, Mary, the mother of Christ, as the new Eve, which is the way it's often put. Jesus is the new Adam, but then Mary is made the new Eve. That's why she's the co-redemptrix. Mary benefited, first of all, and uniquely from Christ's victory over sin. She was preserved from all stain of original sin by a special grace, uh, and, and by a special grace of God committed no sin of any kind during her whole earthly life. So you see that's right in catechism. Question 491. Through the centuries, the church has become ever more aware that Mary, full of grace, through God, was redeemed from the moment of her conception. This is what the dogma of the Immaculate Conception confesses as Pope Pius IX proclaimed in 1854. The most blessed Virgin Mary was, from the first moment of her conception, by a singular grace and privilege of Almighty God and by virtue of the marriage of Jesus Christ, Savior of the human race, preserved immune from all stain of original sin. Question 493, the fathers of the Eastern tradition called the mother of God the All-Holy and celebrate her as free from any stain of sin as though fashioned by the Holy Spirit and formed as a new creature. By the grace of God, Mary remained free of every personal sin her whole life long. That she is ever virgin. 499, the deepening of faith in the virginal motherhood led the church to confess Mary's real and perpetual virginity even in the act of giving birth to the Son of God made man. In fact, Christ's birth did not diminish his mother's virginal integrity, but sanctified it, and so the liturgy of the church celebrates Mary as a Parthenos, 
uh, the ever virgin. 500, uh, just going to skip that one. 501, Jesus is Mary's only son, but her spiritual motherhood extends. Yeah, yeah, okay. Yeah. That's uh, talking about the fact that it's trying to explain away the brothers uh, and sisters of Jesus as not being really, um, uh, well, uh, 500. Against this doctrine, the objection is sometimes raised that the Bible mentions brothers and sisters of Jesus. The church has always understood... <laughs> not really, has always understood these passages as not referring to other children of the Virgin Mary. In fact, James and Joseph, brothers of Jesus, are the sons of another Mary, a disciple of Christ whom St. Matthew significantly calls the other Mary. They are close relations of Jesus according to an Old Testament expression. Um, uh, That is demonstrably false, but I'm not going to bother to um, shoot down that right now because of time. But the point is, they confuse the fact that she is of the virgin birth, this whole virginity thing, this whole sinlessness. Now, here's the reason why they do that. You might say, well, you know, do they just want to elevate Mary? And the reason is very, very straightforward. It's because if she's not uh, a virgin in their view, then she's not holy enough to give birth to a sinless child. So in order for Jesus to be born sinless, she herself has to be immaculate. So she herself then is born sinless by a special act. Now it says, and we didn't get into it too much, but that she gets her merit from Christ. But it's her merit, like in all things Roman Catholic, Jesus gives you merit. He, he's not your merit for you, which is something we'll talk about as we get into justification and so on. But he gives you merit. But the point is, what makes Mary's mother holy enough to have? Oh, but it's a special work that you know that made her at her moment... Well, if it could be done for Mary, guess what? It could have been done for Jesus. And in fact, it was. And we're told clearly in Scripture that it was. Uh, there's several things. In the Magnificat, uh, which is what we call the, uh, uh, the Song of Mary, right, in Luke chapter 1, she refers to Jesus as her, anybody know? Savior. Oh, she might just be speaking for everybody. Well, I don't know. She's, uh, you, again, you've got to go with the evidence, and that's where the evidence takes me. Also, if she had never slept with her husband, uh, as is claimed that she never did, then Mary would have been guilty of sin. Uh, you can read 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 3 through 5. I won't look at it here, but 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 3 through 5, we can talk about this in premarital counseling or any time that you're talking about marriage. Uh, it talks about men and women are to come together regularly. Those who say oh, the, uh, Christians are against sex, no, we actually... Uh, uh, want you to have lots and lots of sex and just do it, you know, in your family. Uh, well, that sounds bad too. <laughs> Nowadays, you have to qualify between husband, which is classified as one man, and one wife, woman, um, biologically born. So anyway, um, but you get the idea. So she would have been uh, guilty of sin for refraining from sexual relations uh, with her husband. And it's very, very clear that um, they did have those relations. Matthew's, Matthew 125 says that Jesus did not have sexual relations with her until she had brought forth her firstborn son. Say again? Uh, Jesus, I'm sorry, Joseph uh, uh, did not have relations with her, right. So it's very clear until, until we all know English means up until that point that after she gave birth, it says that, you know, the old language of the King James, he knew her, right, at that intimate 
or NIV, it's sexual relations and so on. So there you get the idea. So that's that first error that just is, uh, is horrible. It's the confusing the virginity uh, with the, sin, the idea of sinlessness and everything that comes with it uh, really kind of messed up. The second error is one that comes uh, primarily from the Protestant side. Um, and it has, although now there's a liberal side to Roman Catholicism too. And it's the idea that has a problem with the virgin birth just as a whole because it's miraculous. Uh, it doesn't happen that way. Uh, by the way, these are the same people that also have a problem with Jesus' resurrection. So they have a problem with both ends of Jesus' life. They kind of have a problem with everything in the middle too because, uh, and, but you know, these, these folks just have problems. Um, but the idea of the virgin birth. Uh, many of the, the, you know, back in the day they were called modernists. Most part today we just call them liberal theologians. Uh, but most of them will argue that Jesus, of course, is not sinless because nobody is sinless. But even those that do say, why do we need the virgin birth? That's unnecessary because it's impossible. So about 100 years ago, 1910s, 1920s, 1930s, you had people who still wanted to preserve even the sinlessness of Jesus, but they were looking and saying, science tells us that, you know, that can't happen. You know what? They didn't need science. And, uh, well, they had science. But they didn't need science to tell them at the time of Jesus that people are not born other than the normal way. I mean, they knew that. They, you know, they kind of knew it. Um, so they didn't, have, you know, it, it's this idea that somehow now with science we figured out, oh, you know, this doesn't happen. They kind of knew that back then. That's why they were amazed when people were raised from the dead because that didn't happen back then either. These things are clearly uh, uh, miraculous. But the whole idea, of course, is, you know, how could he have been born? But um, you've got to look at the, the necessity of that. In John 3, 6, when Jesus is talking to Nicodemus, he tells him that which is born of the flesh is flesh and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. And you're like, oh, what's he Jesus talking about? And he's getting to this idea that, you know, if he's going to be born of the line of Adam, he's going to inherit that sinful nature. And we've already talked about this when we looked at, at, at Adam and the idea of uh, whether uh, we are born sinful because it's imputed to us directly from, from God or whether it's transmitted through natural generation. We looked at all that. I'm not going to get into all that again. But the bottom line is it is because we are sons of Adam and through that, that line. And he is the representative so it comes to the Father then, uh, whether you want to believe in traditionism that says it literally comes um, through the parents or whether uh, direct imputation. Either way, the result is the same. Uh, through that line, because we're descended from Adam, comes our sinful nature. And so for Jesus to be able to escape that, the virgin birth becomes absolutely necessary. Had uh, he been born of the normal union between a husband and wife, that would not have been uh, the case for Jesus. Now, by the way, don't misunderstand. I'm not saying that the sexual act is a sinful thing. Uh, it is not. But we're talking about that the result of that, the children that come. As one, somebody once put it, it's not, it's not the process, it's the product, right? So let's just be, be clear about that. But you see then how necessary it is that there be a miraculous level of, uh, of intervention here uh, because if Jesus is born with sin, he can no longer represent us as a sinless substitute. He can no longer be that second Adam. It's essential that he be sinless in that regard. 
Uh, you hear people say all the time, well, why does it matter? He can just die for us. We don't have to believe in the virgin birth. Yes, you do, because without the virgin birth, you end up with a sinful Christ, and then he can no longer represent us. So it's absolutely essential. Uh, it's a doctrine that much was made of in the early church because of the understanding of uh, what was at stake. Uh, he can't represent you without it. That then, this is my view, is that that's why the, the Roman church doesn't, wasn't known as the Roman church back then, but that's why the church began going off the rails. Such an important doctrine that had to be emphasized, just like we go out of our way to emphasize the deity of Christ and the importance of that and so on. You can see somebody running off the rails and grabbing that and misapplying it and, and so on. I think the same thing happened here. But absolutely essential. Um, let me just touch upon you know, the passage we read in, in Luke. The Holy Spirit shall come upon you. Remember that? The power of the Most High shall overshadow you. Uh, what's clear here is that the, the miraculous nature of the birth comes because of the work of the Holy Spirit. It's not because of Mary's holiness. You see that? That's very clear in this passage. It's the Holy Spirit's work. What's going on? I don't exactly know what's going on. It just, you know, puts in a very reverent way. The power of the Spirit will overshadow you. I say reverent way because conception is normally, uh, you know, a very intimate act. And, you know, there isn't any, anything uh, being said here other than what we read in some way, you know, uh, she conceives. And we can look at that biologically and say, you know, what does that mean? That the egg all of a sudden begins to just split on its own and so on. So, okay, that's exactly what it means. Uh, but, you know, it's not given, put in those terms either. The point simply being that the Holy Spirit is clearly the one at work. And you see even in the catechism question, it uses, or answer, it uses this language that he took to himself a true body. From Mary, he grabs grabs, takes that human nature, as it were. Uh, he doesn't take sinfulness from her, but he's the one who is taking that human nature through the work of the Spirit. It's not Mary. Now, mind you, she conceived, you know, uh, we want to get to sheer biology. Yes, it was her, uh, her egg that developed and all that other stuff uh, in that regard. Uh, and, and in that process, he, he gets uh, human nature from her. But the, the, the focus, again, is that one of emphasis. That passage in Luke 130-somethings, you know, 131 through 135 through 37 and so on, the focus is on the work of the Spirit, what God is doing. Does that make sense? So you see the emphasis, not on Mary's holiness that enables her, because of her holiness, uh, to conceive of a sinless child, Right? Got that? Okay. I think that's pretty much where we're just about out of time where we want to go with this uh, without getting too much further. Um, the larger catechism, you know, the shorter catechism was written for kids. The larger catechism, which sadly is not in the back of our hymnals, it's in the back of the, uh, we were just looking at the, the new Trinity hymnal that's come out. It's actually called the Trinity Psalter hymnal because they took the Psalter that we have as a separate little book and they stuck it in the hymnal, um, which is a good thing, having it all in one book. But they also put in the larger catechism in the back, which is a good thing also. Um, but the larger catechism actually addresses this in three questions, so maybe I'll end with this. Uh, and I know you can't follow it unless you have this electronically on one of your little doodads and you want to read, but I'll just go ahead and read this. Again, older language, 
But it's really interesting what it's basically saying is why did God have to be, uh, why did Jesus have to be God? He had to be God because the idea of being sinless and being perfect and obeying every moment of your life is beyond us. And being able to sustain everything that he did is beyond us, so you need that. But he also had to be truly man because he substitutes for us, right? Did we read? Oh, we didn't read. Anybody kept, if somebody kept their finger in Hebrews? Did anybody have Hebrews two seventeen through 18? I'm sorry, I should have asked you all. We forgot to do that. Yeah, because we read 2.14, but somebody read 17 and 18. All right, thank you, Daniel. So, you know, you can see there clearly he had to be made just like us in, like us in every respect in order to be our high priest, both in his being the sacrifice himself and interceding for us uh, and so on. So in every way, like us. So you need him to be God, but you also need him to be man. So yeah, let me just end by reading the Westminster Larger Catechism. Um, this is question 38. Why was it requisite? Just a fancy word for necessary. Why was it necessary that the mediator should be God? It was requisite that the mediator should be God that he might sustain and keep the human nature from sinking under the infinite wrath of God and the power of death to give worth and efficacy to his sufferings, obedience and intercession. In other words, he had to be sinless in order to do that. And to satisfy God's justice, procure his favor, purchase a peculiar people, give his spirit to them, conquer all their enemies, and bring them to everlasting salvation. Uh, in other words, something that had to be done was so great that no one could possibly do it except God himself. Question 39, why was it requisite that the mediator should be man? It was requisite that the mediator should be man, that he might advance our nature, perform obedience to the law, suffer and make intercession for us in our nature, have a fellow feeling of our infirmities, that we might receive the adoption of sons and have comfort and access with boldness unto the throne of grace. In other words, uh, to be uh, a substitute for us had to be like us. If he was going to obey us, uh, obey us. If he was obey God as man, he had to be man. If he was to suffer the wrath of God in their place, he had to be man. Um, and then the last question, why didn't I write the uh, I didn't actually write the question. That's silly. Uh, I just have the answer here. Um, it was necessary that the mediator who was to reconcile God and man should himself be both God and man, and this, and this in one person, that the proper works of each nature might be accepted of God for us and relied on us, relied on by us as the works of the whole person. So this kind of brings together the two lessons that we've been looking at the last few weeks and tells us God becomes man without surrendering his godhood, one person, two natures, fully human, fully God, not any mixture, confusion, composition, anything of that nature. Uh, how did he become man? He became man miraculously uh, through the virgin birth. Uh, Mary is uh, uh, like Abraham and like Moses and like David, the, uh, someone to be honored and someone uh, used of God. Um, but she is not uh, the new Eve. She is not the queen of the universe. She is now co-redemptrix along with the redeemer, any of those things. She was a sinful person in need of a savior. And um, the Holy Spirit um, as we says, as it says here, overtakes her and in some way overshadows her rather, and in some way miraculously causes her to conceive. And in that way, Jesus is exempted from the line of Adam, 
born without sin, able to fulfill his role. Mary is to be respected like any one of the uh, uh, figures in Scripture that God uses who was obedient and so on. Uh, some other time, if we had a real um, class just on Mary, we'd, we'd uh, talk about this uh, full of grace term, which is the one that they really get, uh, they, they hang their hat on. Uh, the idea that, again, people are looked at, you know, okay, this is going to make sense to maybe a very small number of you, but I learned this from my son, Jack. Okay, this is not a very good representation, but anybody know what this is? Okay, right? And uh, so see, somebody knows. And uh, it's a representation of how much health you have in this video game called Fallout. So, and, you, and, you, and you wear this thing called the Pip-Boy, uh, which I bought for Jack, uh, a, a little model some years ago. But as your health decreases, that line gets empty. But as it increases, if you're at full health, it goes all the way to the top. This is how Roman Catholicism sees grace. And what Jesus does, because they'll tell you salvation, you can't do salvation on your own, you need Jesus. What Jesus does is he takes, you know, a little, like, probe, and he sticks it in you, like, you know, like when you fill up your car, (laughs) and you you fill up people's level of grace. And Mary, from the very beginning, was topped off. Uh, So, you know, again, there's a lot of things we can get into. But let's go ahead and just stop there. Uh, Do you have questions or comments about what we've looked at? Yes, Marla. Yeah, now, um, I think, just to be sure, you're talking about the Assyrian uh, Marianites, could be, that actually come under the Roman Catholic Church. They, are, they keep the old Eastern liturgy, but they're on, they, they look to the Pope. I think that's who we're talking about. Uh, but still, to answer your question, Easterners still do have a very big deal with, with Mary. They haven't quite gone completely off the rails uh, as our um, Roman Catholic friends have. But uh, they're a lot, little further along than they need to be. Um, and again, this has been creeping into Protestantism. What? Yes. I was at an Anglican church uh, in Dallas uh, some years ago, and uh, um, they were going on about the Blessed Mother and this and that, and there's an, another Anglican church in uh, Fort Worth that actually has relics now, relics. And uh, you know what that means. And uh, they, it's on their website. I'll show you and we can talk about it sometime. And, um, but on their webpage, they also talk about you know, the Blessed Mother and all this other stuff and so on. Uh, we will always find a way to diminish Jesus so that we can worship something else because that's how messed up we are. Was there a hand way in the back? Brandon. Uh, I, I don't know. Uh, and and um, it may it may be, but I don't think so. But yeah, the so-called Vulgate, although nobody speaks it anymore. Um, I don't know. I'm going to have to ask somebody who knows enough Latin to uh, maybe Sharon. No, literally, we can take the Vulgate to Sharon and ask her to you know th- what does that say? Uh, or it's now common enough we can pop it into Google Translate or something. But yeah, I, I'm not. I don't know the answer to that. And even then. Our Roman Catholic friends do have Greek and Hebrew Bibles. Was there another? Okay, I, let, let me. I already got one for you, Phil. Let me go to Roxy and then we can make it back. Well, it, it, isn't that what always happens? The minute that you, it, we're talking about Anglicans. The minute the Anglicans sit there and say, it, and, and the Roman Catholic Church is the same thing, the Bible and tradition. Which one always wins? Yeah, Jesus and. It, it's it's always the case, you know. Once. 
We, Calvin said that we are idol factories. Our hearts are idol factories. We just churn them out. So we have to constantly be brought back in line. Now, the, in all fairness, the Roman church is like the Protestant church, right? You know, I'm not sure that I want to point to some people, you know, that are out there uh, mooing and barking and falling down on the floor. <laughs> Adam put a really interesting meme about it two months ago, a month ago, you know, showing people running up and down the aisles in a Pentecostal church. I don't want to sit there and say, Protestantism. You know, it just makes me sit there and say, Ooh, you know. Um, and they might say the same thing about us. Oh, those people sitting there. Right. Roman Catholicism is a spectrum, and you get folks way on that end. And this is much more common than people realize. And then you have others who are saying, no, it's all about Jesus, and it's all about, you know, who are getting closer. Um, so... But, but the sad part is a good chunk of it. And a lot of people say, oh, that's ignorant Catholicism, you know, in the backwoods. No, it's here in the U.S. and California, as you pointed out, Chuck. It's not, um, not something reserved for some backwater priest who has no education living in, you know, uh, the Andes Mountains or something, which happens too, sadly. Let me take one more, and then we'll absolutely stop, Phil. Yes, and that, in fact, is what the, that was the, that was the end game all along, uh, when you see in the garden, you know, God and man have a relationship. God comes in the garden and he walks around looking for, by the way, there's a whole ch- sermon just on that. Where are you, Adam? This is the God who comes looking for you. That's how much he cares. He comes looking for you. Uh, but, you know, he did so in human form. It wasn't a voice, where are you, Adam? God went looking for them. We, we can't relate to, to God as a spirit. Uh, and, and, but we can, we can get hugged by Jesus, literally. And so, uh, yes, what makes heaven in, Reve- in the book of Revelation, what makes heaven on earth uh, is when Jesus descends. And his return is going to make this heaven uh, because God will be with man once again. That's the whole story of 20 and 21 in Revelation. Um, so that's the beauty of it. However, what's very interesting, um, the idea is that Jesus serves us even now as our mediator. That will never, ever stop. Uh, you will be in your resurrected bodies. You will be perfect. There will only be one less than physically perfect human being in, in heaven. That is Jesus. He will forever bear the scars of what we've done. We will gain everything. It will cost him all. And, and he's a human being, just like the rest of us. So I don't know what it means that he still has scars, uh, but he will always have them. So, um, yeah, we need to talk a little bit more about Jesus, a little less about Mary and about ourselves. All right, let's close with prayer. Dave's back there, and he's like ready to do his thing. So um, they probably want me to suit up too. Okay, let's pray. Father, uh, we are uh, saddened by the fact that we will take anything and everything and elevate it. We love making statues. We have been making statues from the beginning. Um, uh, rock and metal and, and wood and uh, everything else. Uh, and now we make uh, statues of Mary, uh, who indeed is blessed and that she was uh, used of you mightily and uh, was saved by your son Jesus as well. Uh, but Father, how quickly we, uh, we want to exalt something other than our Lord and Savior Christ. We pray that we would understand the importance of the virgin birth and see it in its proper context. Help us, Father, to understand the value, the uh, absolute essential nature of uh, the miraculous nature of the virgin birth. 
help us to more importantly see why you went through all of this. Ultimately, is because from that moment in the garden, you've pursued us. You came looking for us. And now you bear for all eternity uh, the marks of our sin so that we could be free. For this, we give you thanks. And we pray this, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.